Hello, I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All. So, you know, before we jump into things today, the past few weeks have been all over the place. You know, uh, life as we know it is fundamentally changing due to the coronavirus, shelter-in-place rules, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I wanted to just have a note of optimism and positivity. There is 24-7 news which is, you know, rightfully so educating everyone on on precautions and 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 ways to stay safe, but you know, my general outlook and 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 broad opinion on this is that we're all going to get through this. We're all going to get through this together. It's going to take some time, and there's certainly going to be more hardships ahead of us, and we have not hit the peak uh of that hardship. But we're going to get through this just like many other challenges that we've had to get through in the past as a country or individually or as families, et cetera. Um, and we're going to come out much stronger and, and better prepared for the future as a result of this crisis. You know, there are other things if, if you're actually looking at the stock market. I mean, the stock market has been crazy. Uh, the stock market was up yesterday, was up this morning, and then just basically in the past, past hour or two uh, plummeted. You don't see this level of volati- volatility in any normal period of time uh, in markets in general, right? Just it's up, it's down. I mean, you're seeing 10, 20% swings in one day on a given company, right? That nothing material is changing at a, you know, a fifth of the company's value is now up or down in literally an eight hour period of time, actually even less from when the markets are open. So, um, you know, managing that volatility over the long term, over the short term, long term, we're going to get through this. And I think once we do get through this, you're going to see a, um, a huge upside in the equity markets, right? Um, in the short term, if you have the stomach for it, from a day trader's perspective, this is a fantastic time to be a day trader. It's almost hard to get it wrong if you're a day trader, given the level of volatility. And if you can time it right, you almost are able to always time it right, given that these stocks are up and down literally, not just each day, but then if not within the day, then every other day, these stocks are up and down. And the markets just don't really know how to price in the downside impact of what we're seeing. I was on a um, conference call with Scott Gottlieb today. He is the or no yesterday he's the former FDA commissioner uh, this was set up by the New York Economic Club they had a it's on the record but it was still a you know private conference call with Scott um and it was interesting listening to Scott about his outlook and some of what he's seeing it's an hour long call right so it's different than these kind of news clips where you you only get 5 minutes with the guy and it's hard to really dig deep into it but a couple interesting takeaways from that call with Scott was One was the most optimistic models that he's seen in the United States for coronavirus was that it would peak in April. That's the most optimistic models, right? Uh, I don't think he was personally of that opinion that that would necessarily be the case, although it could be, but but a, a small chance. Generally, I would say he tended to think that, you know, come beginning of Q3 going into July, August, we could start to see some return to normalcy, but not actually be fully back to normalcy. But either way you look at it, if we take a step back, it's March 20th. This has really come to a head in the past few weeks, pretty much during the month of March. 
So what you're seeing in the equities markets, when we're looking at the recent earnings releases of some of the platform stocks that we've done past past couple of days on the show, you're just looking at really their Q4 earnings. There was uh, some Chinese companies like Tencent and Jobs that, that released earnings. Um, they maybe had a little bit effect of this in December, but it really started to hit in January, Feb in China. In the United States, come earnings releases are really going to be in you know late April, May is when we're actually going to start to understand uh, the, the, the fuller picture on a company by company level um, in their earnings results. But Q2, I think, is really where you're going to see the bulk of this impact or certainly the, the largest impacts to date uh, on these companies' earnings. We also have started to slowly see some uh, unemployment data, some jobs data, and you're seeing um, huge job losses across the board um, in uh, in a variety of industries in the order of hundreds of thousands of, of, of jobs being lost in a very, very short period of time. So this is an unprecedented period of time. Even the modeling that we've done some comparison and, and um, analysis against looking at the 0809 recession, you know, it's it's a very different period of time in terms of how dramatic things have really uh, fallen off due to the level of government response uh, in many ways warranted uh, for what's going on with the coronavirus. So, so let's jump into things. Um, fintechs. Uh, these fintechs we've spoken a lot about on the show. There's an interesting Bloomberg article out. When did this come out? Uh, a week ago, the most common, I'd say, criticism that I hear about fintechs, particularly from incumbents, is that fintechs have never operated in a, in a down cycle, right? You know, a lot of these fintechs were founded, let's see, SoFi was founded in 2011, right? They haven't, they weren't, they weren't around pre-0809 crash. So they haven't had to go through that extreme down cycle, period of uncertainty, Systems getting jammed up, people, um, you know, putting a run on on their money in the banks, all these kinds of things. Now we're starting to see some of that. The good news is that these fintechs had a lot of time to build up sizable war chests. Not all of them, but some of the major players. You can see some of them listed here: SoFi, Chime, Simple, um, Robinhood's another major player. And we on the show have somewhat criticized the extent that, that fintechs have been willing to pay to acquire customers very aggressively. Like SoFi spending $400 million for a 20-year contract to sponsor the, uh, the LA Rams football stadium. I don't know if SoFi is so happy with that contract right now. There are reports here that Robinhood maxed out its credit line in the month of February. They drew its its full $200 million credit facility because they had to cover their accounts. These companies are still paying over 1% interest if you just keep their your money in, in their account. Uh, it's unprecedented. Marcus is also doing this. I think Marcus is, is still paying 1.6 or 1.7% interest if you just put, keep your money in Marcus. It's not even in a CD. You don't even need to have it locked up for a certain period of time. These companies are and the Fed funds rate is zero. So that means that they're coming out of pocket for this. I mean, it is a it is a big expense to pay this just off the bat, right? They're paying over 1% interest on your money just, just because. 
with no long-term commitment to even stick around and use the service over the long term. These are serious expenses, not to mention the other long-term expenses like sponsoring a football stadium for $20 million a year. These things add up. Not to mention that people, what, what the big banks will say, like uh, I think Citibank, Citigroup, yeah, they're benefiting from a flight to quality. That's a classic incumbent phrase, right? Uh, you're going to take your money out of the fintechs and you're going to put your money in, in the banks that you trust. Honestly, there's some truth to it. You're seeing some money being pulled out from the fintechs and put into the banks. And you know that's some of what they're saying why uh, Robinhood had to draw down the $200 million credit line. Now, in Robinhood's defense, they've said they've paid back the credit line. There's only a short-term credit gap for them. And so they're not continuing to draw down the line. Okay, that's what credit lines are for, for those intermittent cash uh, balancing that you need done. But I think the big fintech players, the ones on this chart, the Robinhoods, I think they should be okay. We'll see if they can continue to keep up these exorbitant customer acquisition initiatives. They might want to tighten the belt on some of those, but I think they will make it through it, through this. I think the smaller fintechs are the ones that are going to have a tougher time here. Maybe they haven't been able to build up as, as deep of a war chest as, as the really large players here. Maybe their infrastructure isn't as strong. Even Robinhood has seen now three major outages just in the past few weeks because people are trying to trade so much, either get their money in or get their money out. And we've seen the system stall. In the past, we've seen Chime stall, right? You've seen system outages. SoFi, for example, one of the big players, they raised $500 million in May of last year, 2019. But they had not raised around uh, prior until Q1 of 2017. They went two years until they raised a $500 million round. Now, these are the guys that did the $400 million deal for the stadium. That's only $20 million a year, only $20 million a year. But still, um, I hope they haven't burned through the $500 million. I'm pretty sure they're going to have runway through 2020. They will be able to make it through this. They should be able to. It's the small to mid-sized fintechs that I think are going to have a much tougher time. And I think you might see some fallout. Yesterday on the show, we were covering an article that was starting to list off some of the startups that have already started to fall victim to coronavirus. We've already started to see some closures. We've covered now a few times on the show. Now there's a huge um, issue in pain point for startups in general, uh, with VCs starting to be much more reticent to continue to, to see through fundraising rounds. And, and are starting to revisit their strategies on investing. So will the classic incumbent ethos that fintechs have not been through a down cycle? They have not, well, now they're in the down cycle. So what's going to happen? I think the small to mid players, you will see, you will see some, uh, some emergency situations where either they start to aggressively cut programs or incentives that they had been giving. Uh, you might see some closures. You might see some, some down rounds as they become desperate to shore up some capital uh, and make it through this period of time. <clears throat> so uh, more to come on this. And uh, the next topic though, is, is the flip side of this, which is the private equity is feeling very good right now. Well, okay. Not all private equity. If, if you're at a private equity firm that went on a huge, crazy buying spree the past couple of years, you might not be feeling so hot right now, but Generally, for the private equity industry, 
This article here says that by last summer, summer of 2019, they were sitting on $2.5 trillion of dry powder. That means $2.5 trillion of pretty much cash in the bank. Now, the way PE they do deals is that $2.5 trillion, they're putting a minority of the funds into the deal is actually equity, the $2.5 trillion, and then they're levering up on these deals. Um, this article speaks about that you know, I think PE is still going to wait to kind of see the market bottom out. You know, I don't think the market has bottomed out yet. I don't think we've seen, as I was just saying, the full impact of the coronavirus on the markets. PE has a war chest. A Goldman Sachs associate told Vox, corporate raiders and PE firms are sharpening their knives. They're getting ready to feast. Basically, as you start to see the market bottom out and you start to see banks willing to lend again, because the PE firms need the banks to help come in on these deals with them. They seed it with some equity capital and then they get the bank usually to cover the majority of the, the full you know, dollar amount of the acquisition. And then they do their M&A. We're going to see a lot of PE activity over the next couple of years. This article also talks about opportunities in real estate. If you're familiar with Steve Schwartzman uh, and what he's done with Blackstone, they basically built the bulk of their real estate business, or one of the, one of, if not the largest real estate alternative asset firms in the hedge funds in the world, um, they basically built that on the heels of the fallout from the 0809 recession, and again, how these um, illiquid markets like real estate, they found really good deals, and they just started to buy and hold real estate. And that's basically where they built their business, their real estate business. Real estate could be particularly attractive. PE firms could buy up single family homes or commercial properties um, and sit on them as they come back in the recovery. You're going to see a lot of this stuff. It's going to be very interesting to follow. So uh, let's see, two two days ago, um, I was talking about how it didn't make sense to me why Uber was down so much. I mean, Uber stock was just plummeting down to what is, you know, what is this? Yeah, 14 bucks a share uh, from 40 bucks a share a month ago, right? I mean, tanking. Um, Lyft stock was basically following step in step to what was happening with Uber stock, which just, it didn't make sense to me. Um, because, why didn't it make sense to me? Because Uber is a platform conglomerate. Because Uber's balance sheet is much stronger than Lyft's because Uber has a ride-sharing business, which is a material part of their business. And so uh, yesterday, Dara, the CEO of Uber, came out and said that they have plenty of cash to get through the coronavirus crisis, right? So we've talked on the show about how companies, doesn't matter if you're platform or not, companies with stronger balance sheets are going to be much more strongly favored in this period of time when there's so much uncertainty. So um, if you got a, if you got a business like many of the platforms that have recently IPO'd, which are losing money, if you have a business that's losing money, how much cash, how strong is your balance sheet to get you through this crisis? So the Uber CEO was saying, its ride segment is seeing a 60 to 70% decline in areas hit hardest, but the food delivery segment is picking up. And the stock rallied 40% on Thursday. I think it ended about 31% on Thursday. It was up again today, but I think it, it ended down today, maybe or break even. Um, 
And that made more sense to me on Wednesday, just how aggressively it was down. It just wasn't making sense to me. And then Uber said, yeah, we have plenty of cash. The interesting thing is that Lyft stock has basically followed exactly what Uber stock has done. And Lyft is a very different company. Yes, they both do ride sharing. Lyft is a much smaller ride. They're the number two player and a somewhat distant number two in ride sharing. They're not a platform conglomerate. They don't have a food delivery business. It's a much different business. We Even before coronavirus hit on the show, we've talked about how Lyft has given much less guidance, much less transparency on guidance, right? They don't show GMV. They only show revenue. So Lyft was not sharing as much information as Uber was. And we felt that that was because Lyft knew that they were going to have a tougher time. And under the scrutiny of being a public company, they decided to um, share less information so that they have a much greater ability to control what revenue is than GMV. Revenue is a derivative of GMV and what they what their take rate is. GMV is your GMV. It's your total throughput. And so that we felt was a kind of foreshadowing of some potential weakness in the Lyft stock. I still think that you're going to see Uber come out much stronger on this than you're going to see Lyft, primarily because of that platform conglomerate difference. There's a tweet here that Uber modeled that if its ride business declined 80% year over year for the rest of the year, the whole thing, not just in select markets, as a worst case scenario, 80% decline, Uber will still have $4 billion in cash on December 31st. And this is also interesting. Goes back to the whole point about platform businesses. Reason is about two-thirds of its costs, including insurance, don't happen when trips don't happen. They don't have the overhead. The rides don't happen. They're not paying the drivers. Now, a lot of drivers are suffering. I'm not rejoicing in that fact, but from a business model standpoint, this goes to the point of having an asset light business where the inventory, where the supply that your customers are, are consuming doesn't sit on your balance sheet. So when you don't have any demand, unlike Delta, which this art right here is saying Delta is going to have a $10 billion hit in revenue, yikes, Delta has to pay those leases for those planes. Uber doesn't. And that kind of just goes back to show you the strength of platforms versus these linear companies in, in these crazy times. Also here, we had, we had Plat f- end the day down 1.6%, 1.65%, 1.7%. And you had the S&P 500 fall 4.3%, the Dow 4.5%, the NASDAQ 3.8%, right? So this is just one day analysis and and we are doing longer month-long analyses on this but again these asset light businesses in periods of drastic consumer decline or demand decline they have smaller overhead um okay next topic so we've had you know we've talked at a high level about corporate innovation uh and this thing digital transformation some people have asked okay well what is digital transformation Um, And basically, in a nutshell, digital transformation for these large traditional enterprises is when you need to embrace digital into your core business. And there's two prongs to this. One prong is I have my existing business model, which has been around for years and probably decades. And it's saying, how do I incrementally improve the existing business model? How can I digitize the existing business model? Uh, we wrote an article to this effect a while ago uh, about you know 
different kinds of digital transformation. So this is kind of incremental improvement. I need to digitize my existing business model. The key thing for the CEO and for the board and the executive team when going into when thinking about digital transformation is to say, where does digitizing my core have a point of diminishing returns? Right? Where does do I need to now say, well, if I was to digitize my existing business model, is there a new business model which in a purely digital environment? If I've digitized my consumer and supply side interactions, is there a new business model, which actually is the new version of my company? And so that is the really difficult thing to manage, right? Um, in, in businesses where you have more consolidated supply chains, where you see lower ability for, say, new disruptive business models like platform business models to penetrate, let's take uh, the airplane, airline industry, or the train industry, um, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, train freight industry, right? These are highly consolidated industries. The um, barriers to entry are very high. There's only a handful of players in any one of these industries. So it's much, there's much less fragmentation. It's much more difficult for new platform marketplace type business models to penetrate. So you're probably going to be able to just digitize the existing business model and continue to be able to do that and have less of a worry about a wholesale change to your business model. If you take the banking and financial services industry or the retail or B2B distribution industries, you're going to have both. I need to digitize my existing business model. I'm Walmart, right? I need to digitize my existing business model, figure out how to use technology in my stores better, right? Or let people do uh, pick up grocery in the store. But I also need to embrace the new version of myself, which is a platform business model. And how you balance these two things, that's kind of the, the holy grail of digital transformation, where you're digitizing the existing, but now you're also embracing new digital first business models like platform business models. As we've seen, platform business models are by and large, the strongest technology-driven business model that's out there. And so you have to try and balance the shift of embracing the new, which could, which could bring a, a level of commoditization to the core business model over the short term. But balancing these two trends is very difficult. Um, building out capability internally versus looking externally and bringing that capability in from the outside. You also have to look at doing both of those. So that's all kind of in this bucket of digital transformation. And it's something that the CEO needs to lead. You need to have a supportive board. You need to have the right capability built out underneath the CEO at the C-suite level of executives here that are able to understand how to keep focused on the core while still exploring the new and embracing these new disruptive business models. It's very difficult, but we're super early on in the process, right? We're actually 10, 15 years into it. You've got decades to come of really seeing the true impact of new disruptive platform-driven business models coming into these traditional industries and these traditional enterprises. One example that we've spoken about of one of the tools in the corporate innovation toolbox is what we would call these corporate accelerators. So there are um, a number of startup accelerators. You've probably heard of Y Combinator. 
we have a number of YC alums that work at Applico. I'd say YC is probably the most well-known and rightly so accelerator in the world. If you go to ycombinator.com, you can see a list of all of the, they have a 102 companies. They say, hey, we've, we have created or our companies that have come through our accelerator program have created over $155 billion in value. The number's probably gone down given the current situation. But um, nonetheless, it's very successful. I mean, look at this list of companies. These are all really top tier brands that I'm sure many of you are very familiar with, right? Twitch, that's number 21, acquired by Amazon for, oh, just a billion dollars. YC's program is pretty simple. You, they actually have a few different programs, but the original program is you, you get accepted into batches. They have like three month long batches. You go out to San Francisco. Now they have multiple programs um, and, and, and they have different programs based upon industry. They cut you a small check, like $25,000, $35,000. They get, I think, maybe 5 or 7% uh, equity. And then what they do is they run you through the program to help incubate your business, help accelerate your business. And then they have a demo day where they bring in a bunch of investors and those investors can now write you checks. The really cool thing about YC is they have a kind of uh, handshake policy at demo day, right? If you're an investor, you go up to the, the, the uh, company, the startup, and you come to a handshake agreement um, at demo day. If you don't follow through on that investment as the investor, you're not invited back to demo day, right? So there are a lot of these kinds of unwritten rules and expectations where deals get done at demo day. Um, and there's a kind of YC valuation bump, right? So the companies, if you get into YC, you have kind of an aura around you. You are going to see that in the valuation coming out of that. Right? It's not uncommon to see companies that are getting their seed round of investment coming out of YC program at you know ten million dollar valuations, not or higher. Not uncommon at all. YC, a very successful accelerator. They have gone on to raise a continuity fund where they now invest in follow-on rounds of the companies coming out of the accelerator. They've ra- their initial fund size for this was $700 million, not a small amount of money. Now, on the other side of the spectrum is Techstars. Techstars also started as a pure play accelerator. They have had some successes as well. They have their list here um, of, uh, of, of successful you know, top companies. SendGrid and, and PillPack, uh, also acquired by Amazon, SalesLoft, um, ClassPass. So, you know, also some successful companies in here. Their stats here, $26 billion in market cap as compared to YC's uh, $150 plus billion in market cap. Okay, look, a successful accelerator nonetheless. What Techstars has also done, though, is they have launched a corporate accelerator program where they will go and partner with enterprises and uh, roll out accelerators in partnership with the enterprise. So you can see here one with the Air Force, with Barclays, with Comcast, with Cox, uh, and you know MetLife here, and so on and so forth. So these accelerators haven't seen as much success. Now, this is a newer initiative from Techstars. They haven't seen as much success as some of those uh, startups that I listed earlier, but they have seen some success. Um, there are some companies in here that did come out of corporate accelerators that Techstar partnered on here. Uh, this one 
chain and chain analysis. I think raised about $50 million or so. It came out of the Barclays Accelerator and blockchain, the greed and, and Newzella. I think these companies have raised a couple hundred million dollars in aggregate, maybe Newzella around 150 million and Degreed maybe 50 or 70 million, if I remember correctly. These were out of the Kaplan um, corporate accelerator. So you have seen some success. Realty Mogul, I think, has raised maybe $50 million. That was the Microsoft accelerator. Now, these companies are paying fees to tech stars to set up these co-branded accelerators. I think the fees generally range between $1 to $3 million. Uh, I would presume annually. Uh, although the accelerator program, you know, typically only run a few months um, in in uh, in length, so you know there's some setup and some prep and some follow-on work that also goes into it. But these companies are paying, and the idea is that these companies can help uh, seed partnerships, help seed and bring some some users uh, and use cases to the um, to the startups that are going into these accelerators. You know, the one caveat I would give to startups that are thinking about going into a corporate accelerator is that when you have a corporate accelerator, there's going to be a heavy emphasis on 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 solutions that are going to help that company, right? Or or initiatives that that company is interested in, right? So the Barclays one is interested in blockchain, the Kaplan one and and EdTech, right? So Kaplan itself though, EdTech is a very broad thing. They're going to have certain initiatives that they're going to be more interested in which could um factor itself into which companies get accepted into the accelerator program and to the extent that the companies uh, are able to leverage the full benefit of that corporation of Kaplan or Barclays or et cetera, right? So um, you want to make sure that this is the right fit on both sides. Not that you just want to get into any accelerator as the startup. There's a lot of time here. Um, you kind of don't, it, it, it's, you don't really want to join multiple accelerators. So you don't want to be that company that just keeps joining a bunch of accelerators. You know, when you join that accelerator, you want to join the right one that's really going to help move your business forward uh, and and put you in a much better position after you after you leave the program. That's some of what we've seen on the corporate accelerator side and some examples. The last topic is saying, okay, you know, what does integration look like? Let's say, let's say you're a traditional business and you want to um, explore some kind of acquisition, investment, strategic partnership with uh, with one of these tech startups, you know, what goes into these different considerations when you want to now integrate these two entities together? Um, so there's a few buckets to this. When we think about integrating, I think one of the key things is understanding what is the readiness of the traditional enterprise. Um, the whole point of doing some kind of M&A or investment or partnership with these tech startups, yes, the tech startups want capital. And big companies have a nice balance sheet and they can use that capital to help accelerate the growth of that tech startup. But platforms and platforms in particular have a chicken and egg problem to solve. And almost more importantly than capital is scale. And that's a huge asset that large traditional enterprises have. Scale. How do you help solve for scale? And that is really the holy grail of getting integration right. Anyone can write a check. How do you bring the competitive advantages that are locked up inside of this traditional enterprise? How do you unlock those and channel them into this tech startup and help them solve for scale? A lot of that goes back to the organizational readiness 
in that traditional enterprise. So what do I mean by organizational readiness? What kind of assets do you have? There's a spectrum of assets. One of the most powerful assets is what I would call latent demand. Probably my favorite asset. If you can channel demand to the tech startup, that's probably the most powerful competitive advantage, intrinsic asset you can bring that startup, demand. The other one would be supply, value-added services. You know, uh, are there fulfillment or logistics or credit value-added services? Um, or, you know, if it's a, um, if it's a, a content platform, right? Do you have um, inventory? Do you have data? Do you have content? Uh, do you have intelligence that you can bring and help seed that platform with inventory or data or other capabilities to improve the operation of the business, right? Or make that, make that core transaction stickier with the consumer or with the producer. Um, channeling demand or supply is also a question of, is that demand digital or analog? Or is that supply digital or analog? So maybe you have a lot of latent demand. Maybe you have a lot of demand that you could channel to this startup. But if it's not digital, and the startup by definition is a tech startup, then that doesn't really translate very well. So very often what you need to do is you need to build out capabilities internally to unlock these assets. Whether it's turning analog demand into digital demand. One example I'll give is in B2B distribution, these distributors have uh, massive sales forces with many thousands of people in, in these sales forces. And very often, there's this concept of buyouts for these distributors. So uh, I call up the salesperson, salesperson, you know, uh, I have 10 things I want from the salesperson. Salesperson only has six or seven of them in stock. And they're going to go call up other distributors to source the three or four things that, that I want so that they can close the deal because I want to buy from one vendor. And so they go buy out maybe 30% of three things of the 10 things that I want from an, another distributor. That's a great example of latent demand, right? I already have 30% of my business is already going to someone else. Um, if I was to bring a marketplace tool to those salespeople, how could I now capture I'm a billion dollar business. I've eff effectively got $300 million in latent demand. It's analog demand. But now how can I bring a digital solution to those salespeople? How can I get those salespeople onboarded to now use this tool so that when I do all these buyouts, which I'm by definition buying from other distributors or manufacturers, right? Um, that revenue is never flowing through my business in the first place. It's already kind of complementary revenue. Um, I could, in essence, have $300 million in latent demand that I could channel into a marketplace solution. But I need to get that tool into the hands of my salespeople. How do I do that? How am I able to have kind of change management? How am I able to have that organizational readiness from a management capability, A, from an, a technology integration standpoint, B, right? So that tool, let's say if I go invest or buy some marketplace tool, uh, or business that I'm going to give to these salespeople, there needs to be some integrations with my core business. Maybe it needs to integrate with my ERP, my inventory inventory management system, or my billing or accounting system. What's the state of that legacy infrastructure? What could I start to kind of build in some middleware so I could so I could have less dependencies on the legacy infrastructure? Right. So there's uh, human personnel and management considerations. 
There's technical considerations in this. Um, and, you know, a lot of this goes to what is the cultural fabric of that traditional enterprise? There's no way that traditional enterprise is going to be able to move as quickly as any external tech startup. But there needs to be some kind of intermediary force that's helping to oversee that integration effort um, and helping to make sure that the traditional business is able to open up and unlock these capabilities, expose them to the tech startup so that the tech startup can be successful uh, and that they're not waiting around on hard dependencies that the traditional business is not giving them. The other thing that this middle layer is able to do is help keep the tech startup focused. Naturally, the traditional business is going to be very excited about all the capabilities that the tech startup is bringing to this large enterprise. There is usually going to be a deluge, a bombardment of requests. If there's 100 requests going down to that tech startup, that middle layer, that intermediary helping to balance things, you know, should maybe pass along two of them to the tech startup. What are those most high priority requests that, that now line up with the priorities of the tech startup and what the tech startup needs to do to be successful? How do you make sure that the traditional business is still excited, is still motivated to help the tech startup be successful? Uh, and these two different cultures are helping to be balanced, their paces are being balanced, and that they can kind of harmonize in making, in, in channeling the scale to the separate entity ultimately uh, capture those winner-take-all dynamics and, and get a win for everyone involved. Um, so integration is tough. Just because you went and did a deal, you did a partnership or investment or acquisition with, a, with an external tech startup, you know, that's actually where the real work begins and, and that's where the integration work begins. Uh, so whether or not that is successful is really the make or break as to whether or not, yeah, that transaction that we just did, does it actually work or was it actually a good idea? is going to depend entirely on how well that integration is, is executed or not. So that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend, and I will talk to you next week. Thank you.